So I invite you to join me in Galatians chapter 5. And today we're going to look at Galatians 5 verses 1 through 15. While you are finding your way there, I'll just let you know. So we may cover some ground here, some things that we've already encountered before in our study of the book of Galatians. And so some of the things I say today, we, we may, you may remember hearing before, but as one man once said, and I think it's, it's wise and I think it's true, if God's word says it once, it's important. If God's word says it a second time, boy, it must really be important. And all God's people said. <laughs> you ever wonder why God's word can be so repetitive sometimes? You ever, ever wonder why that is? I think Karen has the answer right over here because sometimes we don't hear it the first time. Any of you who have young children, you get it. You tell them something and they may not get it the first time. They may not get it the second time. They may not even get it the fifth time. But eventually, they're going to get it, right? And so God reminds us of some things uh, over and over again because sometimes we don't hear it the first time. So we're going to encounter some things we've already seen uh, once before, at least in chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. But if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to follow along with me as I read. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is." But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that I have to stand up here and, and preach your word. Lord, I pray that you would enable me to rightly divide your word in this moment that you would enable me to preach in the power of your spirit, that I would not stand here in any perceived, trusting in any perceived ability of my own, 
but that I would trust completely in your ability and your strength and your power to work through a broken and a fallen sinner such as myself. And oh, yes, I am. So Lord, I pray that you would speak through me now. I pray, Lord, that through the preaching of your word today, that your people would be encouraged in areas where they need to be strengthened and encouraged. I pray that your people would be challenged in areas where they need to be challenged, myself included. Above all, I pray that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word here today. And we would leave this place today with a desire to live for you and to live for your glory and your glory alone. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's quite a glare up there sometimes. March 20th, 1775. Probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but maybe it will in just a minute. On that day in Richmond, Virginia, a young delegate by the name of Patrick Henry rose to speak before the Second Virginia Convention, in which he famously said, I bet Karen knows it before I even finish it, give me liberty or give me death. All of you know it, not just Karen, because of course we learned that, all of us in grade school probably a long time ago for some of us anyway. So Henry stood up to preach that day, or not to preach, but to give a speech. Maybe he was preaching. It was an impassioned, impassioned speech in which he was really encouraging his fellow Virginians to raise a militia. He said, hey, look, guys, we're going to have to fight for this freedom that we so enjoy. The time is coming when we're going to have to fight against the British crown and against parliament. And he said, I really want you guys to understand what is at stake here. And he said, for me, give me liberty or give me death. We're all familiar with that statement. It's been made famous the world over. But before he spoke those words, Henry also said something like this. The question before the house is one of awful moment to this country. For my own part, I consider it as nothing less than a question of freedom or slavery, he said. That's the choice you guys have when Henry is speaking to his fellow Virginians in 1775. You guys have a choice. You can stand and fight for the freedom that you have, or you can become slaves to the British crown and parliament. That is your choice. What are you going to choose? So in the same way, but for a much different reason, the Apostle, the Apostle Paul here in Galatians chapter 5 is giving a very impassioned speech to the Christians in Galatia. And he says to them, you guys have a choice. You can choose liberty or you can choose slavery. You can choose freedom or you can choose bondage. What are you going to choose? But of course, Paul is not talking about political freedom as important as that is. He's talking about something much more important. Notice how he begins in verse 1. And he says there, for freedom Christ has set us free. So he begins by letting his folks know, hey, why did Jesus die on the cross? Jesus died on the cross. He was resurrected from the grave. Why? The purpose here, Paul says, is for freedom. For the Jew, it's freedom from the law. For the Gentile, it's freedom from sin, or at least freedom from slavery to sin and bondage and idolatry. Ultimately, it's freedom from the bondage and the power and the penalty of sin for both groups, both Jews and Gentiles alike. So he says to his Christian audience, for freedom... 
Christ has set us free. This is why he died. That's the price that he paid. Then he says, stand firm, therefore. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. And here he is saying, like Patrick Henry in 1775, it's time to raise the militia. It's time to stand and fight. Because your freedom is at stake. So what are you going to choose? You better choose to stand and fight for your freedom. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So he's writing primarily to a Gentile audience. They're they're Gentiles. They've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Several weeks back, uh, we addressed this. Paul talked about how both Jews and Gentiles were enslaved to idolatry, pagan idolatry. And so he's talking to this Gentile audience and he says, listen, before you came to faith in Christ, you were enslaved to pagan idolatry and sin. And now, because you are being enticed to submit to the law and circumcision, the Old Testament law, you're just going, if you do this, you're just going to trade one form of slavery for another. This is a, a momentous moment for these people. Or in the words of Patrick Henry, it's an awful moment for them. Because make no mistake about it, beloved, the stakes are incredibly high for these people, much higher than political liberty or slavery. The stakes here involve eternity. Look with me in verse 2. And there Paul says, look, I, Paul. I think this is interesting. Maybe you don't, but I think it's interesting. At the beginning of the letter, Paul said, I'm writing to you, Paul. Then he said, and all of the other brothers who are with me greet you. But not now. Now he says, this is Paul speaking. Not Paul and Barnabas. Not Paul and the other brothers who are with me. But Paul. The guy last week who Paul said, remember you received me as an angel. You received me as a messenger of God. As a spokesperson for God. That's the one who's talking to you right now. Which means you better listen to what I have to say. Look, I, Paul, the Apostle Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, I need to stop for just a second and explain a little something. Some Christians have, in my opinion, wrongly interpreted this verse to mean that Christians should never, under any circumstance, circumcise their boys. That's what some Christians, I've known a few in my time as a pastor, and it's based on this verse right here. And I just want to be clear, just so everyone knows, that that is not what Paul is saying. In fact, in verse 6, Paul clearly says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So circumcision by itself, church, is not a moral issue. I just want to make sure you understand that. It's not a moral issue. If you want to circumcise your boys, you have the Christian freedom to do that. If you do not want to circumcise your boys, you have the Christian freedom to do that as well. This is a very small part of what it means to be free in Christ. The problem here is not circumcision in and of itself. The problem with circumcision in Galatia is that the legalists, the Judaizers, the false teachers are telling these people, if you want to truly be a child of God, you need to add to your faith in Jesus circumcision and submit to the Old Testament law. That is the problem. And it is a really, really big problem. You may think, well, that's really no big deal. It's a really really big deal. Paul says Christ will be of no advantage to you if you go through with this thing called circumcision in order in your mind to be considered a child of God. That's not going to happen. We'll come back to that phrase no advantage to you in a moment. He says in verse 3, 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So this is some of the repetitive stuff that we've already covered. I don't know if you remember this or not, but in chapter 3, Paul already talked about this. But just by way of reminder, back then we learned that the law says or suggests, and some of the things that Jesus said or suggested in his words, that the two of them combined, the law and Jesus, suggested that it is at least theoretically possible for someone to keep the whole law and by keeping the law then earn eternal life. There's some verses in the Old Testament law that would suggest that and some things that Jesus said. So the, in theory, if you could keep the law, you could earn life. The word if is, in my opinion, one of the biggest words in the English language. Wouldn't you agree? How many of you remember Don Meredith? Of course. Aside from the fact that he was a Dallas Cowboy, he was a pretty good guy. Are y'all all right this morning? He did play for the Cowboys, right? Yeah, yeah. Aside from that, he was, he was all right. He was on Monday Night Football back in its heyday with Howard Cosell. And Dandy Don used to have this saying. Maybe you remember it, maybe not. But here it is. He would say this. If ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. You need to file that one away and remember it because it's a true statement. If I can keep the law, then I can have eternal life. Well, that's a really big if, isn't it? Because ultimately no one can really keep the law. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan. We talked about this then too, but again, it's helpful for review. The, the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells that parable because a lawyer comes to him, a guy who actually thinks that he can keep the law and earn eternal life. And he says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says to him, well, what does the law say? You're the lawyer, you tell me. And so, oh, this is great. I can't wait. I'm going to get it. And, and he says, oh, well, love God and love others, something to that effect. And Jesus says, that's right. And Jesus says to this lawyer, do that and you will live. Do that and you will have life, life eternal, which is exactly what the lawyer thought he was saying. But then Jesus then goes to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan to demonstrate to this man how woefully short he was, was actually of loving his neighbor and loving God and how woefully short he was of actually attaining eternal life through the law. So Paul's argument is to these guys, listen, if you submit to the law, even for one point, then you are going to be obligated to keep all of it. And of course, no one can do that. And so in the words of Paul, that's absolutely foolish because no one can do it except Jesus Christ. And he did it, and his death on the cross was the last sacrifice of the law. And Paul has already told us in verse 1 that when Jesus died there on the cross and was raised to life again, he did it for the purpose of setting people free. Like, why in the world do you want to submit to this form of slavery when Christ has already set you free? Don't go down this road. But unfortunately, they are in danger of going down this road. And they are in, shall we say, grave danger. Is there any other kind? I don't think so. Verse 4, he says to them, now church... Listen to what he says. You are severed. The word severed literally means cut off. I just want you to know this is the first of several words that Paul will employ in this section where he's making a play on words. 
in relation to the idea of circumcision and being cut off. Because remember, circumcision involves a cutting of the flesh, a cutting of the skin. And he says here, you are severed, cut off from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And so what he's saying is if they go through with their plans to, in their minds, become children of God through circumcision, the cutting of the flesh, the opposite will actually be hap- will happen. They will actually be cut off from Christ. They will be cut off from God. And he says Christ will be of no advantage to them at all. Here's what this means. When he says Christ will be of no advantage to you at all, he's pointing to the future day of judgment, judgment day. You see that word there in verse 4, justified? Remember, we spent a whole sermon on that word justified several weeks back because there was a text in there where Paul uses that word justified like five times, maybe more than that. It was a bunch. You remember. In case you don't remember, let me remind you. The word justified means not guilty. It means being acquitted of the charges brought against you in a court of law. And so the idea is that God is the judge. He is the judge and the jury. And the bad news is you can't have good news without bad news. Somebody say amen. And so the bad news is we've all broken God's law. Every single one of us. That lawyer who came to Jesus, he had broken God's law. He just didn't know it. All of us have broken God's law. All of us are guilty. All of us are going to stand before God in judgment one day. That's really, really bad news. But then there's really, really good news. Even though we are guilty, we can be declared innocent or not guilty, or we can have the charges uh, brought against us. We can be acquitted of those charges. How? Paul says, justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Believing that Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin and was raised to life. Again, if you are willing to do that and add nothing to that, then on the day of judgment, when you stand there, you're going to hear God tap the gavel and say, not guilty. Somebody say amen. Amen. So I used the illustration of O.J. Simpson back in that sermon. I'm going to use it again. You all do know O.J. Simpson. Yeah. O.J., of course, was accused of killing his ex-wife and her boyfriend, and most people believe that O.J. did it. And again, just for the sake of argument, let's just assume that he really did do it, recognizing we really don't know, but let's just assume that he really did. Because honestly, I think he did. I don't know who said that, but thank you. O.J. really killed his ex-wife and boyfriend. He stood trial for those charges, but he was acquitted. He was set free. He was found not not guilty. That's what God has done for every single one of us in this room because we are all guilty like O.J. Simpson. Now, for these people, the problem in Galatia is they are trying to earn their justification. It's okay. That is the greatest sound in church the greatest sound in church these people are trying to be acquitted they think that on the day when they stand before God in judgment that they will hear the gavel and they will hear the words not guilty Paul is saying to them that's not what you're going to hear you're going to hear the word guilty you're going to hear Jesus Christ he's going to look at you and he's going to say depart from me for I never knew you that's what he's going to say for these people who would seek to be justified by the law and circumcision. I told you eternity is at stake. Now, 
Some of you may be wondering, you may be asking, Preacher, how does this verse square with our cherished belief of once saved, always saved? You want to know the answer to that question? The honest answer is? The honest answer is it does not square. It doesn't. I'm not saying that once saved, always saved isn't a thing. I'm just saying this verse in its context doesn't square with it. Some people would say, well, these people weren't truly saved in the first place. Well, that's possible. But beloved, I need to remind you that Paul has already said in the book of Galatians that they received the Holy Spirit upon their initial faith in the preaching of the gospel when he came to them. The truth is, beloved, and here's what I want you to take away. Just forget about all of that for a second. The truth is the New Testament and church history are filled with examples of people who once claimed faith in Jesus Christ, but who eventually fell away from grace. Whether they were genuine believers or not is ultimately unimportant in this moment. All right, In this moment, it's not important. Here's what is important, beloved. Please hear me when I say this. What is important is that you stand firm in the freedom of Jesus Christ. What is important in this moment is that you never sever yourself from Christ. What's important in this moment is that you never fall away from grace. That's what you need to focus on. Forget about that whole theology thing for a second and just make sure that never happens to you. Now, grace is one of those words that we use a lot. I'm not so sure we really understand it. Grace is unmerited favor. It's receiving something we do not deserve. And so true Christians, in my mind, recognize that we do not deserve what we have received. We don't deserve God's forgiveness. We don't deserve the justification, just as O.J. Simpson did not deserve to hear the judge or the jury say, you're not guilty. We don't deserve that either. We don't deserve the gift of life. I know that I don't. We don't deserve adoption into God's family. Because we are lawbreakers and sinners, we deserve eternal separation from God. We deserve what Jesus took on the cross. You do believe that, right? Because we just sang some songs about that, some really powerful songs a few moments ago, some really gospel-saturated songs. That's what we deserve. How many of you have heard the phrase, there but for the grace of God I go? You familiar with that? So that phrase was made popular by a pastor. Imagine that. In 16th century England, his name was John Bradford, and he saw some condemned criminals, and they were on their way to the gallows to be hung, and he said, oh, there, but for the grace of God, I go. And what he meant there is, if not for the grace of God, he understood that he would be hung on the gallows of God's wrath for all eternity. That's a hard thing to imagine, isn't it? And we don't like to think of ourselves in those terms, but this is what the gospel teaches us. The gospel tells us that we need to adopt the same understanding about ourselves. This is who we are. That is what we deserve. But the grace of God is poured out to us the moment we trust in Christ's atoning death on the cross and his resurrection from the the dead. In that moment, we receive something that we do not deserve. So, I just say to you, church, walk in the grace of God every single day. Do not let a day go by. If I've said it once, I've said it a million times, and I'll say it a million times more. Do not let a day go by in which you do not stop, and you do not reflect, and you do not remind yourself of the truth of the gospel, of who you are, who Jesus Christ is, who God is, and what God has done for you 
through his son, Jesus Christ. I'm not suggesting that you walk around every day with your head down like this going, well, I'm just a lowly, no good sinner. I'm not suggesting that you do that. But you do need to, every single day, have a right understanding of who you are in relation to God and what God has done for you. So walk in the grace of God every day. Verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we, I think we there is true Christians, ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So that phrase, hope of righteousness, it also speaks to the day of judgment, just from a different view. So the day when we stand before God and hear the verdict that we long to hear, not guilty, righteous, justified, this is what awaits those who are in Christ by faith and faith alone. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith is what matters. It's not circumcision. It's not the law. It's faith, faith in Christ, faith that he loves me, faith that his love for me is not tied to my religious performance. You do recognize this. Yes. God's love is not like the tides on the seashore. I know we're in the middle of, we're about as far away from the seashore as you can get right here. I grew up, my house was a quarter of a mile from the Atlantic Ocean most of my life. So I know what I'm talking about here. You can go stand down there on the beach at low tide and you can see where the high water mark was at high tide. And there's usually a big difference between the two. And then you can sit there. If you sit there long enough, you can see the tide come in again. And you can see one wave after another just go farther and farther up the shore. Or if it's tides going out, you can watch the waves come in and they don't go as far up the beach as they did before and gradually recede. That's not God's love. God's love... For you does not ebb and wane according to your religious performance. God loves you always and forever. You cannot earn God's love by submitting to circumcision, by submitting to the law, or by submitting to some other form of legalism. Once I get my mind wrapped around this truth, once you get your mind wrapped around this truth, then we together will be free to love God and to love others. That's the whole point. Think of it this way. If I am trying to earn God's love by some legalistic code, then you know what's going to happen. And think about it. And maybe you've known people who would fit into this category, and you'll see it. It's true. If I am trying to earn God's love by some legalistic code, then invariably I will trample over others to get there. In me trying to climb the ladder and to earn God's love, I will just put my fellow human being underneath underneath my boot. No, boot, I'm going to get there first before you. And, of course, that's against the law, right? God tells us to love God and to love others. So, faith working through love, that's what counts. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The word hindered there is another play on words. It can also mean cut in or cut off. And so the picture is of an athlete running a race, and he's cut off by another runner in an unsportsmanlike manner. The question here is rhetorical. Paul knows who the guilty party is. It's the Judaizers. It's the false teachers. It's the ones who want to force circumcision. They are the ones who have cut in on them. Verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. You know what he's saying here? He's saying their teaching is a false teaching. It's a false gospel. We talked about that last week. It's not from God. He said, you've got to expel these people. That's what he said last week. Cast them out. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
And so he is reminding, if you do not cast these false teachers out, it's going to be too late. This false teaching is going to make its way all through the church. It's going to be entrenched like leaven in dough, which for me doesn't make much sense because I don't bake. But here's an analogy perhaps that we can all understand. I'm not an economist, but they say if we don't cut off inflation from our economy, it will be here to stay for a really long time. Same way. If you guys don't cut off this false teaching that's in your church, if you don't cast these people out, it's going to be here to stay for a long time, and it's not going to go well for you. So, beloved, let me say this before I move on. This is why doctrine is important. And what I mean by that is what a church believes about God, humanity, and the gospel has serious, serious implications. And so some things cannot, please hear me when I say this, some things cannot coexist with the gospel. Some things cannot coexist with God's people. Do you agree with that this morning? We need to agree with that and we need to understand that because our society and our culture tells us otherwise. There is a whole host of churches in our nation, in our culture, that have totally jettisoned the gospel and sound doctrine. And some of these churches would even say, well, we prefer love to doctrine. You come to our church and we will love you. Come to our church and we're not going to talk about that bloody cross and we're not going to talk about Jesus in your place, but we're just going to talk about love and it's going to be kumbaya. Christian love, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I'm going to preach for just a minute, just in case. Christian love is not the same as our Western idea of love. Our culture has totally turned true love on its head upside down. Love tells people the hard things, the things that they do not want to hear. Our culture says, if you love me, you won't tell me the hard things. If you love me, you won't step on my toes. You won't offend me if you truly love me. Just let me find my safe space. I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm really not. Just trying to draw a picture. True love stands at the road where the bridge is out two miles down the road and says, stop, turn around, go the other way, repent. That's what true love says. Because if you keep going, you're going to fall off the bridge and it's not going to go well for you. True love is not anything goes. True love was demonstrated once and for all on the cross of Christ, on Calvary. That's the day that love truly won. And true love is the opposite of anything goes. True love will say, I'm afraid you're turning your back on Christ. I'm afraid you're going down the wrong road. You should turn around. But I know you all know that. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will, will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So, so Paul is optimistic that they'll, they'll turn away from trying to submit to the law. And they'll, they'll go back to the gospel. And he says, whoever he is, that does not mean that Paul does not know who these people are. He knows their identity. He, he knows them very well. The point is, God is no respecter of persons. What Paul is saying here is that whoever teaches false doctrine, they will fall under God's judgment, whoever he is. 
if it's Joel Osteen, not much of an if there. Or, I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings, not really. Or, Billy Graham over here. I'm not saying Billy Graham was a false teacher. But if it's Billy Graham or Joel Osteen or someone in between, if they're preaching a false gospel, if their teaching is harmful to God's children, then they will fall under God's judgment. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? We can deduct from this that the false teachers are saying to the Galatians, that guy Paul, he says it's faith in Jesus only and no circumcision, but really, he's going to these other places and he's preaching circumcision. And Paul says, if that's true, then why in the world am I still being persecuted? Go read your Bible and his journeys in the book of Acts and you'll see everywhere Paul goes, he's persecuted by the Jews of the synagogue because specifically because he's saying it's faith in Christ alone and has nothing to do with circumcision and the law. So he says, if that's true, then why am I still being persecuted? Then he says at the end of verse 11, in that case... The offense of the cross has been removed. And again, that word removed can also mean cut off. If that were the case, then the offense of the cross has been cut off. Again, another play on words in relation to circumcision. I love that word offense. The Greek word for offense comes, it's the Greek word scandalon. And we get that word in our English language, it's scandal or scandalous. It's a beautiful word, I think. And let's just understand that the cross is inherently scandalous, isn't it? A lot of people don't like it. They don't like to talk about the cross because the cross says, yes, you're a sinner. You need to turn around. You're going the wrong way. The bridge is out the direction you're going. They don't like to hear that. They don't like to hear that they can't earn it themselves. They don't like to hear that they're equal to O.J. Simpson and others. The cross is inherently offensive. It is. We shouldn't be offensive as God's people, let the offense be the cross. Let the offense be the gospel. Yes, church? But the cross is offensive. No question about that. But Paul is going to preach it no matter what. And it will eventually cost him his life. But like Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death, Paul says. Verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I, I can't sugarcoat what Paul says here. Just can't sugarcoat it. You can probably already figure it out. But it's another play on words. And really what he's wishing is saying is that these people who want you to submit to circumcision, he envisions the knife slipping and cutting off their male anatomy. There's just no way to sugarcoat it. That's what he says in the Bible, in God's Word. It's exactly what he says. And it's just another way of pronouncing a judgment upon them because they're false teachers. The Bible's harsh sometimes. That's exactly what he says. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Freedom is not the freedom to behave however you want. That's what our society needs to learn. These people in Galatia, they needed to learn it as well. Verse 14 for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Now look at what he does. He's a great preacher. One word, quote, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I lost track, but that's like six words at least there. He says one word, and then he goes on to say six. What's the one word he's looking for? Love. The whole law is fulfilled in one word, love. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out 
that you are not consumed by one another. And we're going to stop right here in the text. Because here the book of Galatians is, is making a transition. And we can learn from what Paul says right here that there's some inf infighting and division going on in these churches. That these churches have maybe broken off into different camps, if you will. There's one camp over here in favor of Paul and his law-free gospel. And then there's a, another camp over here, and they're in favor of the Judaizers, the circumcision group, and you know their sales pitches, join us because we're a cut above the rest. <laughs> I have to be honest, I didn't come up with that myself. One of the commentators wrote that, and I thought it was really good. But that's what's going on. These churches have divided into these different factions, and they're, they're now at war with one another. Paul will get into this more in the following section when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Come back next week. We'll be there for that. But for now, he calls them to love one another. That's what he says. And by that, he means Christian freedom is not the freedom to treat people however you want. Christian freedom is not the freedom to behave however you want. Christian freedom comes with tremendous responsibility. So think of it this way. The political freedom and liberty that Patrick Henry and other patriots of the Revolutionary War in that period, the freedom and the liberty that they won for us, it was won at a tremendous cost. People did die to secure the freedom that we now enjoy as Americans some 200 years later. And I would argue that it is our responsibility as Americans and as good citizens to stand in that freedom to hand it off to the next generation. So go vote on Tuesday. The same is true regarding the freedom that we have through Christ. Jesus paid the ultimate price, and I mean the ultimate price, to secure our freedom from the law and our freedom from the power and the penalty of sin. He paid the ultimate price to secure that freedom for us and this freedom church comes with tremendous responsibility that's why he says stand firm therefore in this freedom you have to be willing to fight fight fair fight as a christian but you've got to be willing to fight for the freedom that jesus christ secured for you so how do we do that how do we stand firm in this freedom two ways this morning first of all it begins by faith in jesus it begins by faith it's not faith in Jesus plus something else. It's not faith in Jesus plus some legalistic code. It's faith in Jesus Christ alone. Believing that he died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin. Yeah, that you're guilty before God. But that through faith in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, God taps the gavel and says you're not guilty, you're acquitted of those charges. It begins there, but it doesn't end there. As we have said several times already in our study of Galatians, I will say it again. It begins with faith. Then, after that, we must pick up our own cross every single day and deny ourselves. You think about a church that is racked with infighting and division. Why is that? It's because these people are not picking up their crosses and they're not dying to themselves. They're asserting their wants, their desires. And their wants and their desires are conflicting with one another because their wants and their desires are not submitted 
to the desire of God and the advancement of his gospel and his kingdom. And that's why they are fighting. So we must pick up our crosses every single day. Individually, church, you will not become all that God desires for you in this life until you are willing to pick up your cross and die to yourself every single day. Jesus said, I came that they may have life. I am of the opinion you cannot have that life until you are willing to die to yourself. Someone once said, you must die in order to live. That's actually biblical. Jesus said that too. We've got to be willing to die to ourselves. The same is true corporately, not just individually, but as a church. A church will not become what God wants it to be until every member is willing to die to their own interest, desires, lust, passions, whatever it is, die to themselves and allow the lordship of Jesus Christ to flourish in their lives. Die to themselves so that they live truly for the glory of God and promote his interest above our own. So here's a challenge I give to you in conclusion this morning. What needs to die in your life today? Just ask God that. Talk with him about it. Have a conversation with him. Pray about it. And he will show you what needs to die in you. And when he shows you, the right thing to do is to crucify it. Nail it on the cross. Then you will be a Galatians 2.20 Christian. Father, thank you so much for the great privilege that I have to stand here every week and preach your word. But I want to pray in this moment first for myself that I would be a man who not only stands here and preaches your word, but that I would be a man who practices what he preaches. So Lord, I pray for myself. And I pray that you would show me areas in my life Parts of me that still need to die, that still need to be nailed to that cross. Father, pray that you would show that to me. As a father, as a husband, as a pastor, as a person living in this community, pray it for myself. And I pray it then for all those who just heard this message. Pray that they would take it to heart as well. And that they would pray about it, they would ask you, and that you would show them. And so that collectively together as a church, Lord, that we would go from this point forward and that we would do it, be able to do a mighty, mighty work in your name as we take the gospel beyond the walls of this building and into this community in which we live, the state in which we live, this nation in which we live, and eventually around the world. Pray, Lord, that you would do it through us. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand, church. The altar is open over here, over there. But it's a time for you to respond. If God is speaking to you this morning, if God has said, this is what you need to nail to that cross, you can do it where you are. You can also come and kneel at this altar and pray and say, God, I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to nail it to the cross. Whatever. The case may be. I would encourage you to do that. If it's there or here, don't leave this place 
without doing that today. Maybe there's someone here who's never trusted in Jesus Christ by faith. If that's you this morning, I would encourage you to come and to say, yes, I don't want to live for me. I want to trust in Jesus Christ. I want to believe in him. I want to receive that scandalous gospel. I want to receive forgiveness of sin and the promise of everlasting life. I would be overjoyed to walk along with you as you make that decision. Whatever is on your heart, I would encourage you to come.